0: This podcast contains discussion of suicide and suicidal thoughts.
1: When I was 17, I experienced my first bout of depression. Well, I fell in love and I had my heart broken and there was something else that happened, actually. It's quite hard for me to talk about, but it does sort of foreshadow what happened in Tonga. He was from Waikato Tainui and... We were lying together and a white bird flew into that room, a ruru, and all the doors were shut. It was late at night and I turned to him and I just said, what is that? And he said, oh, that's my kaitiaki, checking you out. And a kaitiaki being like a family god, and that was quite shocking to me. And then he let me down terribly, that boy, my gosh. He left and I went back to school. Yeah, I guess I was heartbroken and I also was a little more suspicious that the world was a bit more than timetables and the secular world and what could be seen. I started becoming more and more withdrawn and I'd always just been such a kind of school superstar that this change in my behaviour was very noticeable to teachers, my mum, everyone, and so a GP was involved. I was put on Prozac, and that was sort of that time.
0: Out of My Mind is a podcast about mental health produced for stuff by me, Adam Dudding. In each episode, one person talks about their life and about the view from inside their head. Today, Another Realm, with Dr. Carlo Miller of Auckland.
1: I grew up in Palmerston North, and I very proudly identify as whatever Pasifika means, but my father is Tongan, and he migrated here in the 70s, and my mother is a sixth generation New Zealander with Samoan ancestry, which my whānau has always been really proud of. As well as being a poet and a writer and a researcher and a mother, I'm the programme director of the Manamoana Experience at Leadership New Zealand. This is a leadership programme for mid-career Pacifica leaders. At the very end of my undergraduate degree, I just turned 21 and I was sitting on a whole lot of A pluses, actually. And I guess coming from a relatively poor Pacific family, that degree was my ticket to ride out of Palmerston North, that's for sure. I guess I stressed myself out so much that I lost a lot of sleep and then I lost the ability to write. I broke up with my boyfriend, like lots of things went wrong all at once. That was the first time a psychiatrist had been involved. And I remember he came into my bedroom, which was a total mess, and he asked me what the meaning of a whole lot of simple proverbs were, like, a stitch in time saves nine. And I couldn't explain it to him. Like, my brain was so scrambled that I couldn't follow the logic of it, even though I knew that I knew what it once meant. And I couldn't do basic maths, and I was pretty good at maths. I was basically prescribed rest and antidepressants. I got an agritat and I was still a Massey scholar, like in the top 5% of the university, but it was quite a serious crash. My father and I decided, well, I'm going to take a year off. I thought I would go up to the ski fields and work there, but it was the year that Mount Ruapehu blew up. so that didn't happen. And then my dad said to me, oh, you should come to Tonga with me for a holiday. And I thought, well, that sounds like a really good idea. I'd been to school in Tonga, and so I got there, and everything was so much slower and lovely, and I thought, I don't want to go home, like, to all that mess I'd left behind. There was this particular school that was just a seventh form school, and I taught there, and I loved it. I just loved it. But Increasingly, I realised that clash between New Zealand ideals of what was appropriate for a young woman and Tongan ideals. The expectation was that if I was a young woman and a teacher to boot, that I was also expected to be a virgin. There were a number of stresses at play, and then something happened of a unwanted Sexual nature, and it was something that put me in a really, really yucky position. And even though I was able to fend this off, just the breach of it was probably the last stressor. That night, I was lying in my aunt's room, which is where I stayed, and I could hear singing outside. It sounded like a Tongan funeral. I kind of lay there and I listened to this singing and talking I woke up very early that morning and I looked out through my window and I saw a Tupper and a woman kneeling on that tupper in the sun and I thought oh that's my grandma and it didn't really occurred to me that she was already dead. I just saw her and I ran outside. And I remember running across the grass towards nothing. <laughs> there was nothing out there. There was no funeral and there was no tupper on the sun. And I realized that somehow all of that wasn't real. And it was incredibly frightening. I just was like, what? That was the beginning of an acceleration of images and hearing things and seeing things that no one else could see. It was terrifying and I couldn't stop it. And that really changed the direction of my life. My and whanau were very worried and they said to me that it was pukete vōlō. That kind of translates as devil sickness, which is kind of an unhelpful translation, but a Tongan elder said to me a lot later that we say pukete avolo, but really they're reaching around beyond humans and beyond understanding, and so not to get too caught up with devil or, or devil, which was a bit of a stumbling block for me. All my cousins and uncles came and slept in the house that I was at to kind of try and protect me, and the buzz must have got out to our neighbours because all these little kids were like throwing stones at the fence going, book it there for law, and stuff. So it scares people, right? Um, and a decision was made within my family that I shouldn't be at that house because it was my uncle's land and not my genealogical land, I suppose, and they decided, the spirits of that place were jealous of me, so they would move me. So I was moved to the place where my whole family fuck uppers too. That just accelerated everything. To be honest, it just got worse and worse. While I was in my family home, it was like I had entered another realm, and I was seeing things and hearing things, and. Every night, I would be transported somehow to Malaekula. We live a couple of hundred meters from the royal burial tombs that King Tauwhaha the I set as sacred ground, Malaekula, the Red Marae. And each night, near midnight, I would be kind of floated or taken over there. And in that Marae, there was It was like a throbbing crowd of angry people, like kind of imagine pitchforks and fists, and every night I would die in a different way. I would be hung or I would be burned in front of this kind of throbbing crowd. And it was horrible. It was really, really frightening. And it just happened over and over again, almost every evening. And And when that was happening, there was this choir of children that would sing to me and I knew they were dead, I don't know And they would sing repeatedly, <singing> Carlo Mela Kula Kula. We love you. La, coola, coola, and they would be very soothing to me, I suppose. You. Me la, coola, coola, we love you. There were many scenes that somehow became more real than whatever was happening to me. I guess I was lying somewhere in a room, but This other world was completely alive to me. At the time, it made no sense to me. It was just beyond my comprehension of what that was. Many years later, I felt slightly differently about how I might understand it. It's very hard for me to estimate timeframes because time collapses, but I suppose between that moment of seeing my grandmother on the Tupper, it could have been three or four weeks before my father arrived with psychiatric medication from New Zealand and to take me home on the plane. I remember I must have been covered in leaves and oil because in Tonga when this kind of thing happens to you there are specific leaves that are uh, understood and I just remember him he was so angry and he was like, get this off her. And for me, when he arrived, his face morphed into something really kind of devil-like. And that was really horrible. Like a lot of the people that I loved there, they shape shifted right in front of me. Time to ensure your securely yeah. awesome. right. When I was on the plane, there were these Tongan male voices telling me to jump out of a plane, and I could hear it so loudly, and I think I might have even wet myself. I was so petrified, and I just remember this horrible look from the air hostess, and the unkindness, and how frightening it was. They folks, Captain speaking. We landed in Aotearoa and my mum picked me up with Peter, her partner, and they drove me all the way down to Palmerston North. And while we were driving, as soon as we entered the forests, like, all the voices would come at me and they're like, she can see us, she can see us. They were so excited and bloody petrifying, and then we'd come to a town and it would go quiet, like, and then I would say to those voices, because I was able to communicate at the time when we got back into the forest, why are they not there? And they were like, oh, that's, and their word was white power. That's where white power is, like electricity, I suppose, and I don't know, colonisation, like, it's just a different realm, but they were thick in the forest. It was a whole different realm that I was in somehow, and, It took quite a long time to return back to this one. The whole way through all of that happening, I knew that it wasn't supposed to be happening at all. And that was one of the most frightening things. Because it is the breaking of your understanding of what is possible in the world. Being an academic, I describe it as an epistemological crisis. Like, you know absolutely know that this is not happening, not supposed to be happening, supposed to be impossible by the ways in which we construct our universe. But because it's happening, you just have to deal. You are hearing scary things and you are seeing like my mother morph in front of me. Like you can't stop it just because you don't believe it's true. And I remember (laughs) lying there with these, like, you know, God, they're straight out of nursing school, these 23-year-old girls with nose rings. (laughs) And um, saying, oh, we're stronger than the voices. We're stronger than the voices. And you're just looking at them thinking, you have absolutely no comprehension, actually, of what is happening for me right now and how horrendous this is. And they aren't stronger than the voices. Until the voices are gone... They're just part of the noise around you that's misunderstanding what's going on. The very first male nurse that assessed me had the face of a ruru, and owl. He was Māori, and I found that so comforting after seeing all these other people look, quite frankly, demonic. And so I immediately calmed down when I saw him. But largely, I felt like The staff that I encountered had no idea what they were doing. I was sat down by a psychiatrist who said to me in no uncertain terms that having a mental illness is just like breaking something, except I had such a serious condition that I needed to imagine myself in a wheelchair and that I would be a paraplegic for life and I would need to take really bad medicine, like important medicine, and that I would have a lifelong disability. And I remember sitting there listening to him lecture me and I thought, no way, you are not confining me to this fate. I will not have it. I remember lying there, and all the walls were pink. Just lying there, day after day, wondering how on earth this had happened to me. The woman would come in and vacuum <laughs> every morning, like, under your bed. I didn't want to get out of my bed. Like, I would have preferred to not be in life at all at that point because it had just all gone so wrong, really. I didn't really want to wake up to another day in that pink room with kind of like the netting in the glass. I didn't know anyone at all that had ever been to a psychiatric ward. I only had one flew over the cookies nest kind of reference points to it, and I certainly didn't know anyone that had been and then went on to live a successful life. I was trying to think positively about my future, and the only way I could do it is by thinking of when I was 30, which was like nine years ahead, and by 30 I could actually be intact again. I might be able to have a family maybe, but at that point you're thinking, oh I have this biological genetic disease that I can't possibly have children. I might be financially stable, at that point you're on an invalid's benefit and it doesn't feel like anyone would ever employ you again. So I just like projected, fast forward to 30, when I actually think about what I was doing by the time I was 30, it was way more abundant than what I could have imagined for myself. Like I was married, I had two children, we owned our own home, I was studying for my PhD, I had poetry books published, I'd won an award, I had a really good job. I was pulling in quite a lot of money. Like, my actual reality at 30 was way better than what I could imagine for myself then, but it was a lifesaver for me to imagine something better than what I was experiencing. There were days and days of being in this somewhere else. And when I kind of came to, in a much softer, kind of drugged up, tired place. The voices hadn't gone, but I guess I was a bit more dull to it. At this point in Aotearoa, the voices that remained, so the Tonga voices seemed to have stayed in Tonga, which was a huge relief to me. But these were voices of people that I knew. I thought, to get rid of these voices, I'm going to have to take matters into my own hands. So I started contacting these people for example, when I was at school I had a best friend and I did something that was quite a big betrayal and her mother's voice was in my head and she just kept on having a go at me and so I met up with this friend and I said, I'm hearing your mum's voice, she's angry at me, could you say sorry, can we clear this and she went and talked to her mum and then she said to me, no she wishes you absolutely no harm, my mum loves you and then her voice disappeared and so I just went through this realm of identifying these people who essentially I had breached in some way, and one by one the voices disappeared, and so did the ones that were just sort of carried on the wind. Not once did any person in that mental health system ask me what the voices were actually saying. They did not engage with them whatsoever. It was just all considered delusion. To a large degree, I was around really ordinary people who had had extraordinary things happen to them. Horrendous things happened to them. This beautiful woman that had only one eye and the other one had been gouged out by her incredibly violent husband. Another woman that was anorexic and... You could just tell she didn't want to be alive, she's just shrinking herself out, essentially. And her story was that she had finally got up the courage to talk about her father sexually abusing her, fairly much her whole life, and her entire family had decided that she was lying and had backed him. There was just so much trauma in there, so much. Some people are just so depressed they can barely move other people are insanely aggressive, lots of anorexics near death, and then people seeing things and hearing things and responding to that in different kinds of ways. It was quite scary when you're dealing with the worst thing that's unfathomable to you, to suddenly be put in this kind of overcrowded place where everyone else is going through this extraordinary stuff as well. It's not exactly what I would say is ideal, but the flip side of it is that solidarity and you're reaching out to one another, trying to make sense of this intense crisis that's going on, and that is helpful in a way. While I was on the ward, they would get us to do all kinds of physical activities. One time they set up a netball game. All of us are a bit zonked out on different kinds of medication and then I just remember the ways in which different people threw the ball. Like, just so weird. It must have just been hilarious to watch. There was this guy that I went to uni with and he was working for our opposing team. And he came up to me and he was like, oh, wow, Carlo, I didn't know that you were working for Manawaroa. I was just like, oh, I'm not, I'm actually a patient. It was just so embarrassing. And I had to really like out myself as being on the other side, not the helping side, not the healthy onto it side, but to self-identify as one of them. Eventually, all of it settled down completely, and I was without a voice, and I was in this kind of soft, (laughs) over-medicated place. But over that time period, like from there to a year later, I put on 30 kilos. I went back to um, uni because I still had that Massey scholarship. I was definitely not the same girl. Someone said to me, I don't know what they've got you on, but it's way too much. Like, I can see how medicated you are, how dilated your pupils are, and you need to get a review. And I was so embarrassed, I was so ashamed. But it was a bit of a turning point, and I'm grateful for that woman. It's hard for me to estimate how long I was in the ward for. It's definitely more than a month, but the second time, so. It, it happened again a few years later. I think I was there for like three months. I'd made a suicide attempt at that point because to have it happen twice was just beyond me, to be honest. And um, I was in the ward for so long that they said to me, unless I got better, they would give me ECT, like electric shock therapy. That was horrifying to me. But They were like, you're not getting better. We've tried all these different meds and we'd like to do that, or you could go on holiday with your family, because my family wanted to take me down to the South Island, but they were monitoring me very carefully. Funnily enough, I chose to go on holiday, partly because I'd seen women around me, largely women who had had ECT, and they lost their memories. And they were walking around, and one of them, she was a very beautiful older woman from one of the richest families in Palmy, just walking around crying because she had lost her memories of who she was. And I thought, like, my memories might be really, really screwed and frightening, but I'm not going to lose them because what are you without your memories? What are they going to do to my brain? And so I turned it down and I went to the West Coast instead and that turned out to be a very good decision for me. It frightens me that they really don't keep good records of how many people they choose to do that to or why it becomes an option. I remember my Nana saying to me that she wished that we had a farm because that would have been a really helpful place for me to slowly recover. What I did have is I had an aunt and an uncle who owned a um, motel in Franz Joseph and I ended up being sent down there and I cleaned for them, then had the afternoon to myself. And it was through that manual labour and you've got to understand that. As so fat like I had gone from size kind of 13 to a size 24 so even to me physically I was unrecognisable to myself was so drugged up I had lost so many friends and lost so much confidence in myself and it was very humbling and I made new friends luckily with people that had no idea who I was before and they were kind to me and Every Saturday night we'd go out and listen to the gambler like you do in the West Coast. And I made friends and it was kind of okay to be me. And I was around whanau and then after that summer of working there, I went back to Auckland and I was on the Invalids benefit. And then I worked for Auckland City Libraries as a part-time librarian, just shelving. And so I had all these kind of, Luckily, these jobs meant that I was able to slowly orient back into the real world. And then I went back to uni and I picked up pieces of papers and then at some point I took so many university papers that I wasn't allowed to be on the sickness benefit anymore and it felt like a bit of a victory. So I had to be on a student allowance and yeah, I made my way back into the world but it took you know, years of slow steps until I was able to stand on both feet and feel confident there. I really don't like speaking to the diagnoses because it gives them power and they've already had enough power over my life. But the very first diagnosis I got, even now, it was just so damaging to me. I was schizoaffective disorder and holy hecka, that is a scary thing to get put against your name. And to the credit of my first employer, I was upfront about that and they still hired me. But then as years passed and it was really clear that actually I was not seeing or hearing anything, they downgraded that diagnosis. So then they decided that I had bipolar disorder and that had been a manic episode. After a while, I became so fine that the um, psychiatrist decided that I must have just had depression with psychotic features, like back in the day. So after going through all of that, I decided that it was kind of rubbish because the minute that you do get better, they just say that they got the diagnosis wrong and it was something else. I guess I had this long period of being medication free and increasingly got asked to speak publicly about my mental health experience. But it was very much like 10 years ago this happened, 10 years ago that happened. And then when I was doing my postdoctoral fellowship at Wellington School of Meds, I was developing a mental health intervention for young Pacific peoples. And in about year three of that, I could feel multiple stresses at play and I was at a mental health conference actually and I had so many friends that were psychiatrists and psychologists and they were like, Carlo, we're worried about you. And I was worried about me. I could feel that I wasn't in good shape. And so we organised for me to get some care at that point. And my experience then was far, far better than anything I'd ever had before. I wasn't put into a ward, I was just put into respite care, and I would wish that for anyone. But it was also really frightening. I remember sitting down and trying to play chess with my son, and I couldn't. Like, I remembered what the different moves were, the, the different things made, but I couldn't logically beat him, and I just remember him being so distressed, because has his, like, brainy, brainy mum who always beats him, just not being able to do it. I thought to myself, this can't happen again, and so I agreed to try out a variety of different medications. Ultimately, I came right fairly quickly, but what was humbling about that is that I couldn't stand up in front of people going, I've been medication-free for 15 years, and back in the day I was this, and now I'm perfect. I mean, I was never that much of a dick, but... it was a real leveller and it reminded me that self-care never stops and different ways of safeguarding myself including medication which i take now even when i got pregnant with makatoa my youngest I breastfed the whole lot i've just stayed on the and i see that as a way of being a responsible parent in the same way that you might buy life insurance and you pay it off each week and it's kind of like a bit of a bummer but Yeah, you're going to adult properly. When I think about the story that psychiatry gave me, it wasn't a compelling narrative. It didn't really explain what had happened to me. In many ways, trying to understand that was what drove my postdoctoral fellowship, which was developing in mental health intervention. My primary question is what is healing, but what I really wanted to know was if I'd been sick like that in Tonga 200 years ago, how would have they named, known, interpreted and treated me? Because what I got in the Western psychiatric system was just rubbish. I had this interview with this Tongan nun and psychotherapist, Sister Cabrini of Makasialu, and I asked her my questions. And then I started to tell her about what happened to me in Tonga, and she explained it to me in a way that I could hear and made perfect sense to me and straight after I crashed my rental car it was just a defining moment She said to me that when I came over from Aotearoa, New Zealand with all my ideas and values and ways of being in the world and it clashed with what was there and it was this complete process of things breaking and disintegrating who I was because it was no longer really viable for me And she said that all of life is in this cycle of disintegration and reintegration. Like a flower will bloom and the leaf will fall into the soil and it will disintegrate and compost and grow again and that that was how the natural world was. And if we held on to being in full bloom, like if we all want to be okay all the time, it's just BS because that's not the way in which the natural universe works. She said to me that I entered a state of disintegration and everything shattering and fracturing, but you disintegrated so far beyond that that you entered another realm. And she sort of said to me, and you know, in Tongan culture, it's just understood that there's this whole other realm, that we were just way more tapped in. And we would jump, you know, kind of like here, there and everywhere through these realms to ancestors and back again, realm of the living and the dead. And she said, the West has lost it to their detriment, but we haven't. And she said, I'm just making this all normal for you because for us it always has been. It was a great relief to me to hear these words spoken and for them to feel so true. So when I had... Been in that deep dream state or other realm whereby I was sent over every night and hung and burned and destroyed in different ways, I thought, well, that must have just come from watching TV, you know, and me being so scared about what was happening and witches and stuff. But many years later, I discovered that the whole of Tonga revolved around a goddess called Hikuleo, She's the elder sister of Maui and Tangaroa. And the kingly lion was just her earthly representatives, and when King George I, Tawwha Hau converted from being the earthly representative of this divine female and became Christian, he and the missionaries went around and hung and beat up and burned these sculptures of these goddesses, and one that is in a museum still had the noose around her neck. And you can go to the Auckland War Memorial Museum and see in the Tongan section this sculpture of a woman that has been beaten and her arms are chopped off. One of the sculptures had this tag on it and it said, this was the household goddess of the Emperor of Tonga when he was a devil worshipper. So, there you go, I guess. I just had no idea that any of this history existed and when I saw the noose around the neck of this woman after having dreamed being hung and burned and all kinds of things at Malaekula where that king is actually buried. It's like 100 metres from our house. I just got the chills and I knew that the story that I'd been told that this was just all like mad delusion wasn't completely the truth. Like I still can't tell you what that was, but I know that that's not true. It is a (laughs) mystery of the universe, and even the most simple things we still generally don't have a good grasp of. So I'm just willing to leave it there, in that place of not knowing, and I think I'm okay with that. There's a diversity of knowledge paradigms around the world that would all treat those same symptoms in really different ways, and who am I to judge the efficacy of taking risperidone versus what they would do, say, in some part of Africa. I don't judge any of those knowledge systems more advanced than the others. And I think even with all the science, I'm still not all that impressed with many of the medications and approaches. That is part of the canon of Western psychiatry. But what I do see is that mental health takes no prisoners. A lot of people end up taking their own lives. It is incredibly frightening, disruptive and complicated. And so you need everything you have thrown at it. So I'm quite happy to have a psychologist, a therapist, try CBT, listen to what Oprah and Dr. Phil have to say about it, listen to what and Wisdom has to say about it, take my meds, get into the ocean. We need to have as much access to different forms as healing as possible, because there can't be a conceit that the only answers lie in Western psychiatry. When I was writing my second poetry book, Glenn Colhoun was editing it and he rang me up and said, holy crap, Carlo, what happened to you? Like, you've got all these normal poems and then all of a sudden you've got these other ones that speak to something really, really different. He was like, this could be a pottery book all on its own. And I was like, no, no. And he said this thing that has happened to you, this horrible thing that has happened to you, has made you more beautiful and you need to know that. And I was like, no, no, it made me put on 30 kilos actually and I'll have stretch marks for life. It screwed me over, it nearly killed me. It took me off track. I could have been so many other things, this horrible thing hadn't happened, and he kept arguing with me that it made me more beautiful. I'm like, okay, I'm willing to accept what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, but I'm not willing to suggest that this makes me more beautiful. And then he was like, well, I would really challenge you to think about what beauty really is, because it's not the airbrushed image on the billboard that's not what beautiful is. And he said to have like a woman go through what you did and then build themselves back up again and never not know that level of despair. He said, for me, that's beautiful. And I was thinking, well, Glenn, like, you're a freak, but I'll take it.
0: Thanks for listening to Out of My Mind. If you want to subscribe to the full series or learn more about the people I've interviewed, check out stuff.co.nz slash out of my mind. If this episode has brought up any difficult thoughts or feelings for you, the website has helpline numbers and links to mental health resources. And if you feel like you need help right now, you can make a free call or text to 1737, where you can talk with a counsellor and get some immediate support. Out of My Mind was made for stuff by me, Adam Dudding. It was supported by a Like Minds Like Mind grant from the Mental Health Foundation. Engineering by Alex Chalkoff at Department of Post, music by Audio Network. My editorial advisor was Eugene Bingham, and special thanks also to Tammy Allen and Katrina Ferguson credits on the website and if you like this episode please head over to iTunes and leave a review with lots of stars. It helps new listeners find us. See ya.